Well, we are in week three of Lent in our sermon series called The Human Condition. Humanity being us and the condition being sin. Lent really is a great time for us to slow down and to reckon with what it means to be human. With all of our flaws, temptations, sins, and disappointments, But to remember those things not only on their own, but in light of the gospel. The gospel that does not simply look over our brokenness, but clothes us in grace so that we can be more Christ-like. The first week of this series, Sterling preached from Genesis in the Garden of Eden. He led us to think about the shame we experience in our disobedience to God. And then last week, he preached on the Tower of Babel, And that week was about the human struggle with diversity and sameness, but God's desire for us to have unity in Christ. Today we'll be turning to Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7, to hear about the time that God brought water from a rock. So hear now the reading of the word. From the wilderness of sin, the whole congregation of the Israelites journeyed by stages as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. The people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord said to Moses, Go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will be standing there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it so that the people may drink. Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He called the place Massa and Meribah, Because the Israelites quarreled and tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? May God bless the reading of the word. Thanks be to God. Well, this passage is the third of four that we call the wilderness grumblings in the book of Exodus and Numbers. These are the stories that take place after Moses has led the Israelites out of Egypt, but before they've reached the promised land. Consider all of the miraculous, unbelievable acts and signs that God had shown them throughout this time. There were the ten plagues in Egypt, where God showed God's power and might even over Pharaoh. There was the splitting of the Red Sea. There was God leading them by a pillar of fire at night and a cloud by day. There was manna raining down from heaven. God had shown God's power, presence, and commitment to the people of Israel, but here we find them again dissatisfied, but this time they're dissatisfied with the lack of water. But then again, if all of us right now were told that we're going to get up from here and start walking with our kids and our animals, and we don't know where we're going to sleep, and we don't know what we're going to eat, or if we'll get to eat or have anything to drink, but we're just going to start walking. I mean, wouldn't we complain to maybe if things got a little rough out there? Mike and I spent the last week in Cancun with two of our very best friends, and before the trip, people kept telling us, don't drink the water. 
Don't eat food that's been washed by the water. Don't brush your teeth with the water. Just stay away from the water in Mexico. So we had that ringing in our heads the whole time as we're down there. And while we were at the resort we stayed at, it wasn't a problem because there was bottled water everywhere because it's a known thing that it's not safe to drink the water. But it became a problem one day when we did an excursion to Chichen Itza, which is one of the largest and best preserved archaeological sites in the world. It was built with the Mayan people starting around 600 AD, and there are these huge towering structures that when you look at them, you think, how on earth did they make these things without machines and tractors and I mean, just the sheer weight of all of the stone in these structures is unbelievable. I was listening to the sermon last week where Sterling described the ziggurat-style towers, and maybe that's what the Tower of Babel looked like. Well, the biggest structure in Chichen Itza is a ziggurat-style tower. It's the four-sided with the stairs going up to the top. In 2007, Chichen Itza was named one of the seven wonders of the world. So we thought while we were in Mexico and relatively close that we should go and check it out. Well, this was a 12-day hour, a 12-hour excursion from our resort to Chichen Itza and back. And as we prepared to go, several people told us, bring lots of water because it's really hot and it's really humid. But all four of us are from Alabama, you know. We said, we've been training for this our whole lives. We know hot, we know humid. So fast forward, we arrive at the site. When we had left Cancun, it was in the 80s and nice and breezy. You know, it was hot, but it wasn't anything terrible. Well, when we got to Chichen Itza, it was nearly 100 degrees and felt so much hotter. And we all brought one water bottle because it was just a two-hour tour. So we thought this would be fine. Well, let me tell you, this is going to sound very dramatic, but it was so hot. It felt like the sun was trying to burn us somehow. I think the sun was closer to the earth there. I don't know how it works, but it was so hot between the walking and the tour and just the heat. That compounded with we knew we couldn't drink any of the water sources we saw made us feel very regretful that we did not bring more of the bottled water that people told us to bring. But friends, this was only two hours, a two-hour discomfort in the beating sun that we paid for, and we were very uncomfortable and complainy. The truth is that most of us, most of the time, do take abundant, clean water for granted. I know I do. I have a water bottle that I take with me everywhere. And around the church, I'm constantly filling it up with the water fountains or the sink because I don't think twice about the water here being safe to drink. But this experience gave me just a glimpse into how scary it can be if the water's not safe or if you don't have it, like for the people in Flint, Michigan or Jackson, Mississippi or countless other places around the world where water is not something you can count on. Because water, it is necessary for life. It's far from a luxury. So these tired, thirsty Israelites are getting pretty angry. And they're voicing their anger to Moses, their leader. And the way that they treat Moses is likely how they would have treated God. Because Moses is the representative, the mouthpiece to God between the people. So they are demanding and they are angry. Moses said, these people are ready to stone me. God, I need you to help me out with some water here. 
So what does God do? God does what God always does in these stories and steps in. God hears their cry and provides a way. He instructs Moses to go ahead of the people, to take some of the elders with you, and to strike the rock. But notice this that God says in verse 6. I will be standing there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it so that the people may drink. So the same staff that once turned water undrinkable in the Nile with the ten plagues now has made water come miraculously out of this rock in the wilderness. God has again done something unimaginable, saving the people. So we might think from this account that perhaps they would name this spot something commemorating God's salvific power, God's amazing grace. But instead, it is given the double name of Massa, which means strife and trial, and Meribah, which means quarreling and contention. So this spot is forever known, not by what God did, but by the human condition that was present before God provided the miracle. Even though a lack of clean water is a valid concern, Israel exhibits a lack of faith and forgetfulness for what God has done for them in the past. Already God has fixed their water supply. God has sent them quail and manna from heaven. The issue now is whether or not they're willing to trust that God can do it again. You know, it's easy for us to pick on these grumbling Israelites when we know the whole story. We know the behind the scenes that God is already at work with Moses and has a plan. It's tempting to declare that we would have responded differently if we had been there in our own life and death scenario with thirsty children and animals and ourselves. We are not unlike the Israelites We too have experienced God's amazing grace, salvific power, and still manage to be dissatisfied. Have you noticed this? I mean, even on a very basic level, we're always just one thing away from being happy or content. We think, gosh, if I could just get a new job, I mean, that would really just fix everything. Or if I could just get my kids on track or get my parents in a safe space, then maybe I would be content. If I could just redo my kitchen, I would be done with all the house projects. If I could just. But this cycle, it never ends. Because when we finish one of these things, we almost immediately start another. It's just part of the human condition to complain and be dissatisfied with our lives. But isn't it kind of exhausting to do so? I mean, think about, maybe y'all have never been in this situation. If you are around someone or a group of people that are constantly complaining and negative, I mean, think about the toll that that can take on you. You start to feel yourself becoming more negative and more complainy. And then all of a sudden, if it becomes a group thing and the whole group becomes like that, I mean, it's really not a place you want to be. But I think this is what was happening in the wilderness. But the remarkable thing about this story and countless others like it, like the Garden of Eden and the Tower of Babel, is that God never turns away from humanity. Despite our shame, 
our divisiveness, our dissatisfaction, our propensity to complain, our God is full of grace and mercy. Stories like this one from the wilderness should challenge us to renew our minds, to change the way we think about faith in our relationship with God. Because faith is about so much more than what we can see or the blessings that we have been given. Faith is believing that God is capable and in control of our future, even when we can't see past today. We had a beautiful example of this faith lived out in the Ascension service today. Joseph and Caitlin Griggs had their one-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Delaney, baptized. And it was really special because Joseph's dad is a United Methodist pastor, so he came in to do the baptism. So I encourage you to, to go and watch it. It was really, really sweet and emotional. But in this moment, the reason I say this is such a moment of faith, Caitlin and Joseph, are they made a commitment with God, with each other, with Delaney, and with everyone who was present there in the Ascension service, that as far as they were concerned, she would be raised to be a Christian. We baptize infants and young people in the United Methodist Church because we believe that God's grace, it is active and present in our lives long before we could see it or recognize it. And so this morning, Caitlin and Joseph acknowledged that on Delaney's behalf. So over the next 11 years or so, they will teach her about God, about what it means to have faith, and about the amazing love of God that will never turn away from her. And then, when she is confirmed one day, she'll have the chance to accept all of that for herself. She will be reminded of that day that her pop-pop took ordinary water, blessed it, and used it to cleanse her and welcome her into the family of God. This is what it means to have faith. Faith in God that says, I may not know it all, I may not understand it all, but I trust you with my life and with the life of those that I love. Friends, we are in Lent only a little longer, a 40-day season that can feel a lot like the wilderness. Through prayer and fasting and penitence, we have pondered our own mortality, our flaws, and our deep need for God's grace. We have given things up, we have taken things on, and we've sought to be more intentional in our relationship with God. So I ask you now, how has it been going for you? Has it been challenging? Has it been life-giving? Enlightening? While Lent can feel long and treacherous, our story today reminds us that God is with us in the wilderness. As God was with the Israelites, so God is with us on our journey, perceiving what we need and providing for our good. So the next time you feel dissatisfied with life, because it's the human condition, the next time you feel the urge to complain, take a step back and consider your situation in light of everything else. Ask yourself, who do I want to be in the world? Someone that amplifies the human condition of complaining and dissatisfaction? Or do I want to be someone that reflects God's mercy and God's grace and God's steadfast love to others? By God's grace, we can become more like Christ every day. 
So let us try to be like Christ, whose faith and utter dependence on God has made a way for us to know that Easter is coming. In the name of God, our creator, redeemer, and sustainer. Amen.